Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is part two of my conversation with Bridie O'Donnell. Thank you so much for being here. If you're new, welcome. If you've been around for a while, welcome back. Hello from my house in Venice Beach. And I'm glad you're here. Um, please uh, subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, or I personally uh, prefer Pocket Casts, um, which is good. Uh, it's an iOS and Android app, which you can use on your phone. Um, that's my preferred podcast um, program of choice, and it's made in Adelaide, which is also awesome. You can also subscribe to my mailing list, and if you want to get in touch with me, you can email me to email me back to the uh, mail that I send out at uh, osherginsberg.com, uh, or just send me an email, uh, send osher email at gmail.com. So yeah, my guest today is Bridie O'Donnell. You can follow her on Twitter at Bridie underscore OD. Also check out her blog, bridie.com.au. It's been a hell of a week in Australia, hasn't it? A hell of a week in the world, even. Are you okay? Are you all right? Because I sure as hell was not. I know that I wasn't in any particular danger. I was safe and warm in a bed, but um, it was very, very tough to watch uh, my friends in Sydney and I'm sure you, your friends as well go through, the, go through what um, that city went through. Very, very, very tough. And also to my my family in Cairns, very, very tough week. Very, very tough week. Um, it's working, working through that. So what, um, what did I do in the meantime is the question. Well, I, I did what was in my power to do. I did all the things that I know that usually make me feel better. Um, so I bought carbon credits for my flight to New York and back. I cleaned my house from top to bottom. 
I took the opportunity to be of service to a friend. I got to bed before 10 p.m. each night. This morning I got up and I got rode on my bicycle. These are the things that I can do. These are the things that I have control of and then these are the things that are in my power to do and it made me feel better. Um, it made me feel better. So I don't know, whatever works for you is going to be all right, but that's what worked for me today at least. Um, but yeah, thanks so much for all of the amazing feedback about this show being on the ABC for two weeks. That was amazing. My mom actually got to hear an episode, which was awesome. So did my dad. That was nice. Um, and uh, thanks and welcome if you're new and you've just turned up listening because of that. Very, very glad you're here. Allow me to introduce my guest for this week, which is the same as my guest for last week, Dr. Bridie O'Donnell. She's on Twitter at Bridie underscore OD, and you can also find her blog, bridie.com.au. She is uh, the short story, someone who, uh, as a doctor at 35, gave up her medical career to chase her dream of being a pro cyclist because she doesn't want to live a life of what ifs. If you want to hear the background to the story that we're going to conclude today, you can listen to the previous episode, which is online right now, and I won't mind. You can come back to this one when you're done. We had a chat at her home in Melbourne. She's a very, very interesting woman. She talks a lot about cycling in this episode. Um, we do talk about some slightly technical cycling terms, but don't worry, it'll all make sense. I'm sure you can find a metaphor for all the stuff that she talks about um, in your own life. Even if you're not a cyclist, you'll understand what it is um, that she's talking about and how you might be able to apply the lessons that she's learned there to your own life. Well, you guess, I guess all you really need to know is that the pack or the peloton that we talk about when you see cycling on the TV and you see that huge swarm of riders just plummeting down a mountain, that's what that is. It's called the peloton or the pack. And when she talks about being the hundredth wheel, that means she's a hundred people back from the front of that pack. And when she talks about dropping people, that means people who are chasing her and can't keep up and they drop back. So that's pretty much all you need to know. I think we talk a lot about uh, cycling. We finish up the doctoring talk. <laughs> in a moment there's a big cliffhanger from last week that uh, we're going to revisit right now um, but we also talk a lot about women in sport and women athletes and I champion Bridie very much to pursue some of the things that we talked about and I'm calling her out to start her own podcast because like I say in this show the time between now and when she starts her own podcast is far too long so um Please do support her. Send her a message on Twitter at Bridie underscore OD. Let her know that you would like to hear her voice more, that you would like to hear her podcast, would like to hear her view on the world. Um, she's a very, very inspiring human being. And uh, we're going to get into the very serious uh, talk about how we can do our best things for uh, women's sport very, very shortly. But first, let's wrap up the story she was telling us about when she was in Bundaberg working as a doctor. Um, as we had a cup of tea at her home in Melbourne. Not a weekend went by when people would come in with stuff shoved up their ass. And more interesting than the things that they shoved up there were the stories they manufactured. One of them was great. This guy had a jar, a Vegemite jar up his ass. <laughs> no mean feat. And so he said, uh, oh, Doc, oh, you wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe what happened. I said, oh, I bet I wouldn't. Barry he said, yeah, I'd locked myself out of my apartment. So I thought oh, I'm going to have to break in through the kitchen window. And I said, oh, yeah. He said, and I've just bought these new trousers. Oh, I didn't want to get them dirty, right? So I'm taking the trousers off. I thought, oh, God. 
here we go. Um, you try and keep a straight face and say, why are you even bothering to tell me the story? And I said, really? Then what happened? Well, I'm backing through the window, right? You know, <laughs> but first, and I said, but did you have underpants on there? And said, oh, uh, I did. But then I remembered I probably should have t- t- taken them off first, you know, because uh, with, with the pants. And Tom said, so you're backing through the window into your kitchen, wearing no clothing, buttocks first over the kitchen bench and you slip. And he said, that's right, Doc, you wouldn't believe it. One in a million. I slip, I fall onto the ground and there was a jar of Vegemite straight up the butt. And I said, right, amazing. And had you pre-lubricated that jar of Vegemite? Was it covered in Vaseline? And he just looked at me and gave me this filthy sort of, you don't believe my story. It's your job to believe my story. And I said, look, don't bother telling the surgeon the same story. He doesn't care. He just wants to, he'll, he'll tell you next time, put a string around it so you have an emergency ripcord and whatever you put up there will come out again. <laughs> I did this as a phone one night on uh, at B105. Uh, oh, did you? Yeah, and I just, you know, because it's late at night, you know, there's plenty of nurses listening and I said, what's the best insertion excuse you've ever heard? And um, it wasn't an insertion excuse, but it was, uh, he was a... Uh, he worked at a funeral parlour. I was vacuuming the hearse. <laughs> All right. I was vacuuming the hearse and I had to reach around to, to, to get the, and I slipped <laughs> and, and, and that's how my penis ended up in the vacuum cleaner. Oh, look, it's so easy for that to happen because he wasn't wearing pants while he was doing the vacuuming. Well, it's cleaner that way, you know. It's more well, sterile. when you work in a funeral home, I'm sure that. <laughs> <laughs> Man. And here's the thing, though, you know, I'm sure that right now there's someone who's, you know, fairly experienced in BDSM who just, they just wander straight in from a Hellfire Club and go, look, we were doing some suspension work. <laughs> it went wrong. It went a bit wrong. Went a bit wrong. Um, so, you know how it goes. You know how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> Same as last time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sorry, down this time. Yeah, <laughs> you can help us out. Um, so we should probably talk about cycling. Sure. Um, which is pretty amazing. So between rowing, when you were doing all this doctoring, what role did the rowing and the Ironman play in keeping you sane? Oh, they were the only thing keeping me sane probably. And I was just really working to support my elite athlete lifestyle. So... Um, it wasn't ideal as an athlete to be working so much. Obviously, the, the best part about being an athlete is you get to recover and lie on a couch and, you know, Snapchat inappropriate photos to people nowadays. And so I think um, it was, it helped give me a whole new focus. And maybe it was a distraction. And my parents certainly thought, this is terrible. You need to be thinking about your career. What are you going to specialize in? Or your friends. Was there pressure from your folk? Sure. I mean, they, they're not doctors. They're not, um, my dad's a teacher and has played an enormous role in my education as a young person. And my mum, you know, she'd been a social worker and then worked in the public service in Queensland and and Victoria. So they weren't sort of, uh, oh, look, lots of parents don't actively pressure you. It's not like she was a tiger mother making me play violin. But they would, I think it was just curious. They just, we weren't an active sporting family and we certainly weren't an athletic, elite athlete family. So for me to take up rowing and then say, yeah, I think I want to go to the Olympics. Sure. They, they just, even now that mum will say, oh, you're riding again. Didn't you ride yesterday? <laughs> so I'll say, oh, you're drinking water again. You drank yesterday. I think um, it, 
I don't know why, but I um, I just had this sort of unshakable desire to be exceptional. And it took me a while to find the right sport to be exceptional in. You know, I was a good triathlete and I was a pretty good rower. And then I was a bit better um, at Ironman triathlon, but I was constantly focusing on the flaws or the reasons that were holding me back from being awesome. And my partner at the time when I was doing Ironman, he was a professional Ironman triathlete. Um, This was my husband and he was a great athlete. But I remember having a a groundbreaking conversation with him one day where I said, oh, you know, you've done Hawaii a couple of times. You won your age group. Do you ever want to win Hawaii? That must be your next goal. And he said, oh, no, I'm not good enough to win Hawaii. And I remember being shocked, thinking, why are you doing this? If you don't want to be the best at it, what are you doing it for? And I mean, in a way, he had a great approach because he thought, well, I know my capabilities and what, what I can be good at and great at. And I'm not that guy. I'm not Craig Alexander or Chris McCormack. I know my limitations. And I said very proudly, well, I don't know my limitations. Thank you very much. I'm happy to stay deluded and ambitious and really bitterly disappointed every time I don't reach them. So we were very different personalities, clearly. Uh, But I think that um, I learned more about myself and about what I needed and didn't need and who I needed to impress or whose expectations to live up to by doing sport than I ever learned as a med student or a doctor. Like I think I was smart enough to get into med school and I'm not trying to downplay it, but you get into med school if you work really hard and you apply and you get in. Um, School's not that hard if you're doing it the right way and if you don't want to be there, then school's shit. So I think it's it's not that, um, it's not a mystery. I think some people know how to apply themselves and they care enough. And if you don't care enough, well, then why would you do well at school? It's not that important. And as you've seen, 20 more amazing years of your life have occurred since you hated school. And that's kind of irrelevant. In fact, it's a cool story anyway, that you're too distracted playing guitar. It makes you sound very Jack Johnson on a on the beach. <laughs> oh, it wasn't Jack Johnson. <laughs> that was the fantasy. The fantasy was that, you know, that I would be that guy. It wasn't even Jack Johnson. It was Nuno Betancourt from Extreme. Oh, yeah, that's what of course. Mm. He had good hair. He had good hair. Yeah, for sure. You I got, had good hair for a while. great hair. I had, I'm, I'm 40. You still got all of it. Yeah, I know, but you must get complimented on your It's Jeff Bridges' quality, your hair. <laughs> You've got height and volume. Do you? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's good today. Well, it's, been, it's, it's a travel day, so uh, sure. it's been under the hats all day. It's been in a trucker hats. How do you find um, living in different countries all the time? Um, it's difficult on um, your... Well, it was all right after I got divorced because I wasn't in any shape at all to have any kind of relationship with anyone mm. whatsoever. And just trying to figure out how to be by myself was or was important. And so that was actually kind of good because you get the opportunity to reinvent who you are every time you pop up and you'd know there's moving countries. You mm. just people will take what you give them the moment mm. you turn up. Say, so, hey, um, Osher. Uh, no one called me Andrew at all in America. It's great. Um, and I do this, I do this, I do this. They go, okay. Mm, great. Yeah. Uh, and you're like, oh, I can totally reinvent who I am everywhere I go. This is interesting. Is that ever dangerous? Um, I don't think so because it's most like I've done it only recently in Amsterdam, moving there, for, uh, not moving there, I've been living there on and off working at the school, going to school mm. and working at the school, which has been amazing. And um, I think uh, – in sobriety, there is a you know, there's definitely a a part of sobriety is you work very hard to be right sized, is what they call it. And so you turn up and you know I don't say oh yeah and I'm this guy and that guy and blah blah blah. You know I will own my achievements 
I'm, I'm not shy about my achievements and I'm not shy about what I've done. I, when I first moved to America, I would go and I'd mumble it because I was so used to talking about what I did here mm. where people were so tall poppy about everything. Mm. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm proud of what I've done and I'm proud of the work I've done and, you know, I'm certainly humble enough to realise that there's many other people in the world better than me but what I've done is exceptionalism in my mm. experience and I'm, you know, certainly not on, athle- on an athletic level but I demand very high standards of mm. myself when I, if I'm going to do a job, I do it really, really as well as I can. And I, I guess it can be a little dangerous, but for some people, I see some people turn up to LA and they do a bit of that. But I, I think it's all going to, you can't hide anything now. Everything's going to find mm. you in the end. It's interesting to say that about America. I loved being in the US. I was there in 2012 for six months racing with a team uh-huh. and based in the Bay Area for half the time and oh, a bit on the East Coast. Amazing. And it was such a contrast to Italy, living in Italy, obviously, not just geographically and culturally, but just the interactions that you have with people. And, um, you know, for example, uh, two two very common conversations I would have nearly every day of the week. In Italy, I would lived above a bar, cafe, and I would go downstairs in my kit, have an espresso and go riding. Without a doubt, every single day, some guy would come up to me in Italy and go, eh, in Italian, he'd say, ah, Bridi, uh, what did team you ride for? Uh, hmm. But uh, what are you do? You do the sprint or the climb? You're not a climber because well, you're too fat to be the climber, yeah? Uh, my brother, he was, uh, what time do you do up the Cuvignano, eh? My brother, he does 18 minutes, you know, and so it's just like this constant comparison and you keep getting told that you're not good enough. Mm. Um, you're probably too fat. Everyone's too fat in Italy, except you're always told that by a short fat man. Of course. <laughs> and, um, and it was often very disparaging or, you know, I'll, I'll bring you back down to what you need to learn because mm. I'm greater than you. Then I went to the U.S., and I'd be in a coffee shop in Palo Alto in my kit, Vandekit and kit. Someone would come up and say, oh, my God, are you a biker? Oh, my God, are you a biker? And I'd say, yeah. And so, oh, my God, that is awesome. Do you ride, like, for a job? And I'd say, yeah. And they'd say, good on you. And the first few times I thought, this, are these people all on Prozac? And then I realized that's because this extraordinary opportunism and positivity it's everywhere. That's and a, I know that that's a particularly amazing part of America. It's a culture that celebrates success. Yeah. And, oh, and it's you a want currency something? and potential is yeah, a currency yeah, there. It's totally. And I think what I loved about it too was you could you could say, and same contrast thing with my mum. My mum was really sick when I was in Italy. She had cancer. The Italian people would say, eh, maybe she's going to die. Eh? And I'd be <laughs> devastated. I'd go to America and I'd say, yeah, my mum's having chemo. And they'd say, I can tell Tolu by looking at you that your mom is a fighter. She's going to make it. And I just want to say to you that you are awesome. And I thought it was very strange. I felt kind of like total culture shock going from one of those places to the other. But I loved um, this idea. And, you know, this is, I suppose, partly in my naivety, this is what I think America is founded on, is this idea that you get there and you go, I've decided I want to be this. And people go, cool. That's exactly what I, that's exactly why I love being there. Mm. And every time I think about, do I want to stay there? I remember that that's a big part of mm. it's part of the culture. Yeah. It's part of and it's in many ways why they're so damn successful mm. doing what they do, you know, economically. I mean, every culture's got its issues and ours certainly does. Yeah. I, I really think like if we as a country want to compete on a global scale, we really need to have a look at how much we spend our day tearing each other oh, down. it's shocking. It's so, it's it's so much energy telling each other we're Absolutely. shit. Absolutely. But that's just a joke, mate. Yeah. Is he knows we're kidding. Yeah. No. Yeah, well, that's not going to work. 
<laughs> or she's not going to go out for you or you're not going to get that or you you can't make that team. You're too old to be a great athlete or you're not going to be able to, you know, that won't work. People yeah. are, in, and I found that with as an athlete, you find that you get constantly told, here are the 483 reasons why this isn't going to work. Yeah. And if you're a sociopath and you want to prove everyone wrong, that's quite a good strategy. But for most people, it's actually not. It actually breaks you. If you get told that enough, um, you think, yeah, I am a bit too old or they've already told me they're not going to select me ever again. So I'll try, but in the back of my mind, I know it's futile. Now, if in America there's this approach where you want it, you can go and get it. You show them. It's, it does change your mindset. It really has this, um, it's a much more carrot and stick approach and I think that we need to focus more on that in this yeah. country on in so many levels and health on yeah. and that's and this is a digression sorry but one that's of the things right. with motivational interviewing that we do with patients is if I was talking to you about the fact that you're never active and you need to lose weight I'd say so you've lost weight in the past let's can we talk about that and the patient might say yeah I went on this diet and da, da, da. and I said well, what else happened and how did you manage to keep that weight off and you're constantly reminding them they've done it before they're mm. not a loser they're not hopeless but then things happened. They lost their routine. Their boyfriend broke up with them. They had to change their job. Yeah, and I totally oh, got, you know, and I started eating too much junk food. And, and so they see the pattern. But you're having this non-judgmental conversation with them about it mm. and saying, um, you know, okay, so what could you have done differently? Or what? And what I say a lot to patients now is, so what needs to change for you to be able to go to the gym? You've got the membership. You've got the clothes. Your husband says you'll look after the kids. What what else needs to happen? And at least and then they think, yeah, I probably just need to get out of work half an hour early. So they're already thinking mm. about strategies. And I think as a doctor, you're taught, um, you're a no, it's a knowledge-based degree. And we, we sit down and I'm the doctor, you're the patient, so I'm, therefore I know more than you. I'm smarter and I'm going to give you information and I'm going to prescribe behaviour. But in fact, people don't respond to that and now they can get that information on Google or Wikipedia anyway. So it's our responsibility to understand and have empathy for your situation. Oh, you've got a kid with a disability and your dad's dying of dementia. Me saying, stop smoking, you're thinking, you know what, I've got bigger things to worry about. So to understand the context of that patient and, and the fact that they're smoking, you say, okay, can we revisit this conversation in six weeks when, you're, when your father's out of hospital or when your kid's got the calipers for their legs and they're back at home and you feel a bit more maybe a bit more confident, and even giving people that permission and saying, is that okay if we talk about this again? Um, now, I've got a luxury job because I've got time. That's, that's for doctors is a terrible, terrible thing, and the, a lot of the doctors I work with at Deakin Uni when I was teaching there, it was, ter- it was terrible. One of them said, oh, I don't ask patients, how are you? <laughs> then the consultation would just take too long. And I said, you don't say, how are you? Oh, no, I'm very careful because if they walk in the door and you say, how are you, they'll start talking. And I said, oh, how awful. The patient will want to tell you things. Isn't that terrible? And I just thought, this is d- depressing. Yeah. I remember my mum saying that when the uh, when the practice got taken over by the big oh, yeah. Meadowcorp or whatever they are, the big, you know, six-minute consults Ooh. in and out. The mum's OG. Mum takes notes by hand. Now yep. she's there going, six-minute consults, you've got to take all your notes in your computer. She's like that. Because mum's old school doctor. Every doctor I see, mm. I try and make sure they're over 50. Yep. I want, I want old doctor. Mm. I want old doctor who says, how are you? Mm. I don't want young guy who goes, moxicillin, three times a day, yeah. boom, next. Yeah. I don't want that. Yeah. And 
And I remember she, you know, she was very much. That would have been so hard for her. Yeah, yeah. It was tough. And that's why she, you know, but she's older now, but she's, yeah. she's enjoying that. Yeah. Um, you um, have such an incredible view. Like when I, I wanted to know when, you, when you're cycling, when you are climbing up those mountains in Italy, because you have this vast physiological knowledge of your own body, yeah. is it hard not to be present to the changes that are happening during training and competition? Oh, that'd be that, that endorphin's getting released. Oh, that, oh, that little niggle there, that's that. Uh, my, that's <laughs> all my, the niggles, yeah, yeah, you yeah. You self-diagnose oh, when you're yeah, climbing. Shockingly. But as a doctor, you do that all the time and say, oh, yeah, that's probably meningitis when you actually just got a sore neck. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think as a, um, as a writer, because I started writing so late, I was so far behind the skill level and the experience and tactical decision-making that all those amazing women in Europe are. So I, the very first race I did in Europe was the Tour of Flanders, the infamous cobbled classic. And That's I was, the one from One Sunday in Hell. Yes. Which is one of the greatest sports movies yeah, it's terrific, ever isn't made. It? Mm. It, it's on YouTube. Go and watch it. It's called The Sunday in Hell. You can just download it. Mm. My friend Luke told me to watch it. He goes, this is when cycling was like dudes with beards and there's no <laughs> drug, and, there's yeah. no doping and it's just like they get up oh, in the morning. Really? <laughs> Come on. What was it, 1973? Man, have you heard of Eddie Merckx? 72. Okay, then. All right, then. <laughs> Less doping. Yes. And but, yeah, just, you had to be hardcore. You no helmets. Oh, God, yeah, I know. <laughs> so I, your first race was that? That was my first race in Europe. I was terrified. And it was like a war zone because chicks crash and you hear people scream and you've just got to keep eyes front, keep riding, don't look back. Let, oh, that's good. There's six less women I've got to beat, you know. It's ruthless. And yet it, people are, I think people's biggest um, misconception about cycling, and it was definitely mine, is that it's a sport for, that you're an athlete and if you're a good athlete, you'll be a good bike rider. And in Australia, we see a lot of women come to cycling from other sports like I did and you're a good athlete and you think, oh, yeah, I'm strong. Oh, I can ride a bike. I'm fine. And then you go to Belgium or Holland or something and you realise you've got to be able to stay in that perfect little sweet spot behind the front of the peloton in about 15th, 20th wheel all day long, which is actually, as you know, constantly moving forward. And it's only now that I've been doing this for quite a few years where I actually feel comfortable moving around a bunch. I'm not thinking about crashing. I'm not thinking about if I'm in the right spot and when will the attack go. I've got much better insight and tactical moves and stuff. But I didn't have that at the start. So I was there racing thinking, yeah, yeah, good, good. I'm at the front. Oh, my God, how did I end up being 100th wheel again? You know, how come all those people overtook me? Oh, my God, that girl's going to crash. I'm going to crash. You know, so that's the monologue you're hearing. You're not thinking about how you're feeling. All at the same time while keeping up a high cadence yeah. and climbing. And, and then having, and then when I moved to my Italian team, which was just ridiculous, I was the only non-Italian in the team. And the Italian DS was having it off with with the um, one of the riders. So he, he would occasionally chat to her. And so he was having like a little cutesy conversations with her during the race over race radio. But, yeah, they would yell at you about what to do and when to go to the front. And so you'd go to the front, yeah, 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 okay, I'm at the front. And then you'd turn right and it'd be a crosswind and suddenly you'd be back in 100. And you think, ah, I, but I was strong. What's happening? And they'd say to me afterwards, wow, oh, pretty, we don't understand. Like, why are you so bad? And I'd think, no, 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 but I'm not. You know, these are my, this is my watts per kilo and this is my VO2 max. And, but you realise this sport is about understanding mm. how it works and that's why Mariana Voss and all these incredible riders who've been doing it for a long time, they don't fuck up as much as everybody else. And the Americans and the Australians and the Kiwis that go over to Europe who are good athletes, we take a while to get good, you know, that we don't have that bunch sense. When did you know you had it? Oh, too late, like when I was back in Australia. Oh. So I started racing in 08. 
And so in 08 and 09, I was in a national team. 10 and 11, I was in two different pro teams in Elite. And 212, I was in Vandekitten. And then I couldn't afford to keep being a bike rider anymore. And I came back to Australia in 2013. And I started racing the National Road Series. And it's different, much smaller. But now I think, oh, yeah, I'm quite a good bike rider. I wish I could go to Europe now. Mm-hmm. And I've only been racing for five years. So I'm a neo-pro. Yeah, all right. But I'm 40. No one's going to give me a contract. So, and I, I don't want to sleep in bunk beds anymore, you know. Yeah. And when I, was sleep, when I was living with nine girls, if you got into the house last, you last to the shower. There's one shower and, you know, I, I was off in ninth. No, no hot water? No. Nah. No. Crazy. I get a bottom bunk because I'm older because I said I don't want to be in a top bunk, you know. That's some of the concessions yeah. you get. But you don't want to leave that and be away um, for six months and then come back to Melbourne and go to a coffee shop and people know you and go, oh, you've been away. You think, Mate, you have no idea what's happened to me in the last six months and they didn't even notice that you're gone because yeah. the time shift, it's like that interstellar movie. You know, when I was gone, it was 40 years of hell and when they come back, they've had a week. So just because a lot of people listening, pretty much I'm going to say everybody listening, isn't going to go, uh, here's my career. My career is going great. My career is going awesome. I'm going to stop everything and become a professional athlete probably – 15 years after everybody else made this decision. Yeah, what a jerk I am. No, it's amazing. <laughs> and make no money, yeah. What did you learn? What what do you have to say about making those kind of decisions in your life? And people, oh, like yeah. if people are listening you and they're going to do that no question. If that is that if that is a little glimmering tiny little candle in your chest and you think I really want to do this, um the the worst thing you can do is ask people for their advice. You can tell people you're going to do it and say, oh, I'm going to need your help or um, try not to give me too much of a hard time, break my balls, I'll rompe a coglione. But um, if you ask people, they'll say, oh, I don't know. And look, I was married and clearly for all sorts of reasons and these are things that I discovered, I didn't want to be there anymore. And so I feel for my husband, ex-husband, because really effectively I was saying, hey, yeah, yeah, we just got married a couple of years ago. Things are great. I'm just going to go and live in another country because I really want to pursue this dream. And so he says, okay, great. You want to try go to the Olympics? Do it. And then I don't qualify for the Olympics. And I say, yeah, but I think I really want to go back. It was horrible and terrible. I'm not getting paid any money, but I want to leave you again. And so thinking back now, I know I used those opportunities to facilitate extracting myself. I was an appalling extractor. It took way too long and he was terribly uh, aggrieved by the time I finally extracted myself and I see why. Uh, For people who are making these kind of decisions or have these decisions pending or rolling around, you just say if that's, what does it feel like? What do you, when do you know? One of the things I read the other day which I loved was um, someone saying courage is feeling the fear and doing it anyway. Mm -hmm. I feel afraid of things all the time, of, of looking stupid, of being humiliated of failing. And when I say failing, I mean wanting something terribly, doing everything in my power to to get it, bringing the best people that I can to help me and then not achieving it. That's what I consider to be a failure. And of course, when you look back um, and you go through paper clippings and medals and all these things that you find in your cupboards, you think, okay, I'm not a total failure. I, I achieved great things. And I've also been involved in so many processes and journeys and crazy stories that have made me, me, mm. uh, it's not a failure. But it is a word I know we use and it's a sciencey word. It's an athletics, athletics kind of word that it can generalise, I think. But getting back to that idea of being risk averse, I think that's 
the biggest challenge is being around people who will say, dad, don't do it. Stay on the couch. Don't venture away because it could look bad, result in a bad way. You'll be different. And then how does that make me feel? You know, and I think that's a big part of it. People in general are very egocentric and they say, oh, you're 40 and single. That makes me feel a bit, you know, uncomfortable that I married that chick I don't really like and we're still together and we had three kids and I've got this really massive mortgage and a job that I'm miserable at. And then you come back to Australia after living in Amsterdam and LA and you look really happy and you travel and you say you meet cool people. How do you think that makes me feel? So now I'm going to hassle you about being a vegetarian and not drinking. (laughs) And so then I want to lean across to those people and say, hey, Maka, you need a holiday, mate. You look exhausted. Wow. And that's, I think that's what people are doing to you. You know, they don't like the way you make them feel about themselves and the choices that they made and that they didn't take any risks and they weren't brave. You're so brave. You're brave every day because if you wake up feeling anxious and you still get up. It's the worst. <laughs> you've got extraordinary courage. Thanks for saying so. It's, there's many other people. I don't do it alone. I have a team, much like you do, much like you do. I remember talking about this with Rich Roll. Talking about, you know, who have you got? What are, what are, it, was, it was going to be the name of rumor in, uh, up in the air. George Clooney has his What's in Your Backpack mm. uh, motivational mm. seminar. We were going to have the one who's in your crew van. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who's in your crew van? <laughs> coffee dealer. He's got to be there. Uh, yeah, the guy that I buy my coffee from, Sam. Thank you, Sam. Love you. Cyclist. He and I ride a lot. Oh, cool. Um, he's unreal. Uh, who else is there? Oh, two shrinks. Uh, Why do you have two different countries? Uh, one's pharmacological, one's, uh, yep. one's not. Um, oh, mentors, two mentors. How uh, did you find them? Um, one's through business school, one's through a fellowship I'm in. <laughs> really? <laughs> Are they happy clappers? Uh, no. <laughs> but the first rule of this fellowship is you don't talk don't about this talk fellowship. About it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Fair <laughs> I, sh- I should never have brought it up. No, it's all right. Uh, so, yeah, and then my brothers. I'm mm. very grateful to have. Um, three incredibly wise brothers that I um, go to various, and we're we're lucky in that we have facially similar, but also neurologically similar. Mm, so we have similar fears and similar views, and we had a common upbringing. So when I have a, if I'm seeing something in a strange way, I'll ask someone. They go no, and I ask my other two brothers. They go oh yeah, totally. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is what I do to deal with that. Yeah, and the other one, one goes oh, this is what I do. To that mm. okay and there's always something in that i think you know i'm really grateful for that i'm, I'm really lucky that i've got those three men in my life mm. which is uh, really good when you were in those cycling teams what's it you know you're 35 you, you're in europe what's what's a, what's 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 the, what's a life like what's life like when you're out there and um it's split that? in half half of the time you're on the road with the team and you're literally um, jammed into the back of a team car in a shitty motel or racing. Shit, it's like being in a band. It's exactly like that, except you're all wearing the same thing and it's orange lycra with teddy bears on it or some horrible outfit. Um, and then the rest of the time, my my most beautiful moments, and many of them were longer than moments, were, the, were when I managed to escape the team house or the team all went back and lived in their own parents' homes and I was in the team house on my own. So there I was living in this sort of weird empty house with four bedrooms and and I, and I would wake up and there was no, I didn't listen to watch Italian TV because it's all crap. So I'd wake up 
and this is when I really became engaged in social media um, and I would have connections with people I'd never met before because there I was in Italy and I could type in English to people and tweet and stuff. And then I would go riding on my own, you know, in particular when I lived in um, Veneto, which is just north of Venice, I'd ride up through Montebelluna, the Prosecco area and uh, the Passo San Boldo and, and ride for three or four hours and then come home and eat food, not too much, don't want to get fat, and um, <laughs> go visit the team owner. He would criticise me and abuse me and I'd think, ah, fuck you, Lucio, and then I'd come back home and make myself dinner, read a book, um, write, a, write something on my blog and then go to bed and do that every day. And then think, oh, I wish I was racing. And then when I race, I think, oh, I can't wait to have time back on my own again. You know? <laughs> so um, for the women who are fortunate enough to be in a team that's well-run, well-organised and they get paid and they actually have friends in the team, it must be a very different experience because, like you say, I was older, I have a degree, I consider myself to be someone who likes conversation. Then to be so stifled in your communication because your Italian is like year four level, um, it, it's hard. Yeah. A lot of my conversations are, yeah, I like tomatoes too. Do you like tomatoes? Ah, Stefania, do you like tomatoes? And, you know, in, in Italian, uh, sitting around a dinner table, sure, that's conversation. You're all having chat, but no one's saying, how do you feel about things? And did you read about Berlusconi? How do you guys vote for that guy? I mean, he's a fraud. Um, you know, you don't have conversations with people the way you'd like. Mm. and then if you've left a partner at home, you're trying to Skype them and you're on an eight-hour time difference and it's never the same and you're either resentful of each other or terribly missing each other or not wanting to call them. And, you know, it, I know all of it. I bet you do. I know all of it. How long were you married for? Uh, three and a half years. Really? Yeah, but we were together for eight. Yeah. And, and it was, uh, and a lot of that was in different countries. Wow. A lot of it was different Incredible, countries. Incredible, isn't you it? You never call at the right time. Yeah. Never. Never call it right now. I can't imagine how hard it would have been for pro bike riders 15 years ago when there was no Skype. A guy I knew <clears throat> said he used to walk from the team house about 250 metres around the corner to a public phone box, put some euro in there, call his wife, ring, 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 doesn't know if there's no caller ID, there's no mobile phones. Sometimes he'd get her, she'd say, I'm just bathing the kids. Like, why are you calling now? Hangs up, walks back in the rain, you know, and you think, far out, like. People wonder why these guys cheat on their wives. <laughs> God damn. Yeah. Um, have, you, have you got time? I mean, been, we, I'll talk to you all. Oh, look, we're just bearing boring the audience. But no, no, no. Check. Are you kidding me? We, Jesus. <laughs> we've covered so much and there is still so much to go. Um, and I'll say it now just in case I don't get to it. The time between now and when you are podcasting is way – even if you did it tomorrow, it's still too late. Too long. Okay. Yeah, you've got to do it. Okay. You have a – I feel that your voice, you have a duty to get your voice out there. I really do. This is why I'm here today. So I wanted to show you, you know, it's really important that you do this and you bring your view not only of, of the world but also of women in society, women in sport, and how men can be better at not being Jason in Bundaberg. You know, it's really important. <laughs> And you should do, and, and, you know, so I'm putting that seed in your brain. Okay. Um, and uh, I really want to hear you commentating on next year's Tour de France. No, no kidding, man. Please. It's not about that. It's not about not wanting to. I've put my hand up. I keep putting my hand up. You should really. You know, your voice is perfectly good. So um, let's talk about women in sport because with anyone who's just got a vague awareness of sport in our culture is aware 
that there is an inequality between men's and women's sport. I've only ever seen it firsthand when I was covering the surfing, ASP surfing, um, and it was chasm is a small word for be- between the men pros and the mm. women's pros. What's it like to be on the inside of mm. that? It's really challenging. And because I've come from a background of medicine where 50% of or 51% of my medical course were women, and then I went into a, a narrower field and when I was working in orthopedic surgery where only seven, one in seven surgeons are women. So it's a bit more challenging. You think, oh, gee, that's a bit tough. It's pretty hard to get into. Then you go into sport and you realise that men's professional cycling cyclists are getting paid 100 times what the women are getting paid. 100? You're not exaggerating? No. There is no minimum wage in women's professional cycling. So more than half of the women race for no money. So they're in Europe and they're being put up in a crappy bunk bed and they're given equipment and they're taken everywhere they need to go and they don't have any expenses, oh, except for food and coffee and calling their family and buying internet. But some of them are doing it for no cash. And I had a 15,000 euro salary one year and I thought, oh, that's pretty good, you know. And, um, of course, I was paying rent back in Australia and then paying rent in, in Italy. So being a pro cyclist cost me a fair bit of money. Um, that being said... I was unusual in that I was older and a lot of women are younger and they're being supported by parents or partners. And look, it's hard for young men. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. As well, to go in, not everyone's getting paid what Cadell Evans and Simon Gerrans and um, Fabian Cancellara are getting paid. Um, but even interestingly, you know, an American um, Horner who's won the Vuelta a year and a half ago can't get a contract. And it's a hard industry, of course, because really most teams, cycling teams, are run by a company who has to care enough that they feel they're getting the promotion. So the challenge for women athletes is this terrible roundabout conversation where everyone accuses the other person of being at fault. So you talk to mainstream media and you say, hey, The Age or Sydney Morning Herald or Washington Post, Times, whatever. Why is that woman who won, who's the captain of your soccer team, not on the cover? Why did you put a guy who's, um, you know, the 58th best golfer? Why is the story about him? And they said, well, no one knows who she is, you know, and no one follows women's soccer. Uh, So we need to do the story on the people that they know because then they'll buy the newspaper. So then you go back and you say, oh, why aren't the TV channels buying or even broadcasting? Because, for example, the Flesh Wallone, which is a big race in Belgium, another classic where the women's race gets held on the same day as the men's and it's got this amazing climbing at the end. When I did Flesh Fall On, there's cameras everywhere, TV cameras, and they're filming us doing the race and then the men's race is later. And 
a woman I know who owns a cycling team, um, Velocio, and specialised Lululemon, and she's a, a been an amazing pioneer in women's cycling, Christy Scrimger. She said she discovered that through a friend who works for Eurosport that they have all these gaps in their broadcasting. They have all these half-hour gaps where they think, shit, what are we going to put in there? And the race director has got these guys that are going around filming, but nobody is saying, now get the video, give it to that guy, and then go take it to Eurosport and then make Eurosport put it on and say, here's a half-hour package of the women's bike race. Because the race director isn't interested in doing it. He's not going to make any money out of it, so why should I do it, you know? And so this goes round and round and round. If you were more prominent, then we'd put you on. And if you, we, we put you on, then people would know who you were. That, that concept of social proximity. And until you're an important man who has a daughter, a sister, a girlfriend or a mother who's an elite sportswoman and you suddenly think, shit, this is terrible, you don't think about it. And most elite male cyclists are too busy fighting for their own career and their own contract. It's stressful enough that they don't, they're not putting their hands up and saying, hey, guys, you know, what about all our chick teammates that, they don't, they're never in the paper. They don't make any money. There's no certainty. Um, everyone's kind of scrabbling. And we see this in anything. It's like that great uh, Cheryl Sandberg, you know, who wrote Lean In. What's her name? Cheryl Sandberg. Sandberg, sorry. Um, we have to be in a pretty strong position ourselves to want to facilitate the development and the greatness of others. And that's why in business a lot of women aren't helping other women because there's only one of them there. You know, Gail Kelly just recently stood down as the CEO of Westpac the biggest, highest paid female CEO in Australia ever. She said some remarkable things about what it was like being a head of a bank in Australia. But she said, yeah, there weren't many women role models and mentors. So then you're important. And then some other woman's there saying, hey, 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 I think I want to be better. And you're thinking, well, I'm the only woman in town. Why would I help you? I'm too busy just trying to keep my job. Mm. And and a lot of men in business and a lot of men in sport are in a bit more of a relaxed position. So they go, hey, yeah, let me help you. I'm going to mentor you. I'll develop you. Ah, the girls, you know, it's not that big a deal. So I think that the biggest challenge, and we see this every four years, is reminding people how brilliant women's sport is and that they need to stop comparing it to men's sport. It's different. That's, I think that, that's, the, that's the main hurdle that a lot of people have. Their only paradigm is men's sport. Their only paradigm is state of origin. That's, mm. that's the level of intensity or the level of engagement that they have. And, then, and women's sport is an entirely different thing to appreciate. Mm. So how do you have that conversation? Well, I think I think partly um, sometimes athletes are responsible and one of the things Lane Beachley talked about at this conference I was at a couple of weeks ago is um, you need to get people, it's like any marketing employee, you need to get people engaged in your story. She did that a lot. This is my story. This is where I've come from. This is what I want to do. I'm going to be amazing. Do you want to help me? You want to be on board? Do it. Now, it's very easy for a woman who's been a seven-time world champion to sit back and say, bloody oath. I just, you know, but she admits that she was really impatient too. I mean, she was on the board of Surfing Australia as the only woman of 18 men for a decade. And what a surprise. <laughs> they just thought she was this annoying little scrapper, you know, and they go, oh, Wayne, you know, oh, here we go. But she was relentless. She just didn't give up. Um, not everyone has that luxury though. Not everyone, um, people get injured. They don't keep, can't keep funding themselves. And they just think it's just too hard. I'm tired. Yeah. But I think other athletes like Mariana Voss, who I described before, she the way she rode the Women's Olympic Road Race in London two years ago was far and away phenomenal in that perhaps, and I'm not saying this is the way it needs to be, but she rode so aggressively and ambitiously and opportunistically that people were entertained. And coincidentally, the men's road race at the Olympics was incredibly tedious. It followed a real formula that a lot of men's races follow, which is it's very long, 
12 men go on a break. 200 kilometres later, the guys in the bunch decide to chase them down and then it's a sprint. So for six, six hours, sorry, not much is happening. Now the commentators wax lyrical about the men in the break and what's happening there because it's like cricket or baseball. They can talk about it for hours. When the commentators don't know the riders in a women's race, and this happened at the Commonwealth Games, they say things, they're bored. Well, why is she doing that? No, nothing's really happening. Now, if a commentator is saying that about the athletes, I think that's extremely disrespectful, but it's also really ignorant. It says you haven't bothered to do your homework about who this athlete is. Whereas when we contrast that with watching the Olympics, you can watch anything at the Olympics and those commentators are expert. You can watch equestrian or rhythmic gymnastics. And the woman commentating that will say, see this young woman from China, she's extraordinary. Now, she's known for this particular skill. Look at her here. See how well she does this. Any great reviewer or any great commentator draws you in because of their knowledge, their enthusiasm. That's the best part about watching the Olympics. Absolutely. It's like learning the, 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 like, okay, so now we're doing the uh, double-length <laughs> compound bow. Now, these bows have a 45-kilogram pullback, which is, you know, just trying to think about that. For 45 <laughs> kilograms, these women are doing it 100 times a day. Now, do you try and keep, like, oh, yeah, that'd be really hard. Absolutely, I agree. <laughs> you know? Winter Olympics, when they talk about G-forces and, you know, <laughs> the snow and the slush and what kind of wax do I need to put on those skis, you yeah, know? Yeah, the biathlon, you know, you've got to talk about, uh, you know, heart rate and breathing and, you know, these, these, these rifles are very difficult and then I've got another 10 kilometres to go. <laughs> it's brilliant. Absolutely. Yeah. And it does draw you in. And yeah. so what we need are more informed commentators mm. and we need channels, mainstream channels and SBS to take a chance on people who actually know the writers. They need to employ me or Kate Bates or um, we've seen Rochelle Gilmore, former writer, now team owner, commentates in the US and the UK on their, some of their commercial channels. Mm-hmm. She's brilliant. And everyone mm-hmm. says, oh, wow, it's great. She knows the writers and she talks about them. You think, yeah, duh, stop employing former um, Olympic gold medalist, no offence, Scott McGrory, but, you know, just keep hiring the same people doesn't make them a good commentator. It's just that you know they're reliable. Hmm. Um, and I think that we need to to improve that standard. We've seen it with women's cricket has really improved in Australia. Um, soccer has improved as well and a lot of um, professional teams are piggybacking or coinciding women's teams, so the soccer or the W League for women is are the same team, same name, same funding as the men's A League, which is terrific. Same so, funding? No, I mean, sorry, sorry, same budget structure. I was going to say. So they get 10% the salary. Yeah. But, I mean, look, America has been the gold standard in this with Title IX. It's now over 25 years since Title IX. And a lot of people... Can you let people know what that is? Oh, so I think it was, yeah, 25 years ago or more that they um, legislated that the funding for college sports... Um, university. University sports needed to be equal for men and women. And there was a lot of opposition for that because I think football has been, in America, has been notoriously um, responsible for sort of, I don't know, I'm guessing, but 80% of the budget of many universities. And so if you're a lacrosse player as a girl or an athlete or a swimmer, you're, you might be there on a scholarship thanks to the amount of money that the footballers make. And you think, yeah, but that's actually how society works. People who earn the most pay more tax and we have nice roads. So let, you're only as strong or as talented or as wonderful as your weakest and most addicted and worst behaved people in your society. So let's build everybody up. Let's make everybody great. And then you see why women's soccer players and swimmers and rowers in America do so well because they've had this wonderful opportunity at university. Mm. And we don't have that here, obviously, and we certainly don't have it in if, you're, if your daughter is a good mountain biker, she's going to struggle to get opportunities to race or um, if she's a BMXer or, a, you know, swimming, on the other hand, lots of funding, lots of coaches. Still relies on a lot of parental dedication or slavery. 
yeah, a lot of riding, running, yeah. riding, driving back and in forth. Early pool, morning, yeah. At, at Sparrows. Mm. What about, uh, and I know it's very, very different, and I just thought about it on the plane there when I knew I was coming in to see you today. What role does the sexualization of an athlete play oh, when you're comparing huge. men's and women's sports? Mm. You know, there's that famous footage of Matt Shervington in slow motion. Yeah. He had a talk, yeah. Huge. So, so he says. Well, it was in slow motion <laughs> in his running suit. You couldn't miss it. You could. It was like, how the fuck do you run that fast with the that between The funny thing is trousers? that's freak factor. Like, I don't know about you, but not many people who like dudes uh, or maybe the guys that like dudes are into cock, but not many women are there saying, yeah, I really just love a guy running with a dick swinging back and forth. Whereas on the other, so sexualization of men, it's effective to a point. But, I, but then we also value unattractive, um, boring and unsexy male athletes. There are plenty of unattractive or ugly male athletes who um, make lots of money. They're very good at their sport. They can't speak. They're possibly, you know, lacking in articulate skills, but they make good money because they're good at what they do and they say, oh, geez, he's great. He just gets down to business. Now, people can't use those same expressions about female athletes. They, they prefer them to be better looking. They don't even mind if they get their kid off and pose in their undies or nothing in a magazine because then we value, we, and I don't know where this comes from. I think that um, people need to take, I think media and, and those people need to take responsibility for the fact that they actually are feeding this to you. I'm giving you a picture of a woman who's a world champion in her undies because what I'm really saying to you is, yeah, yeah, she's a good soccer player, but how hot is she? Yeah, she's hot. So you can feel better about appreciating her athleticism. Now, if you're her boyfriend or her parents, you go and watch her play soccer and you think, gosh, she's great. She's really fast. She's very agile. She's really aggressive and she's opportunistic. And unfortunately, and I've been in lots of races where commentators in a crit where you're going past, you know, round and round in circles on a road loop that's maybe a kilometre or so, and the commentator will make some comment like, oh, that's a pretty horrible uh, aggressive pain face, Bridie, showing I wouldn't want to be her boyfriend. Now, someone said that on a loudspeaker in front of thousands of people while I've been racing. I was in a solo break dropping, you know, on my own with these world-class riders behind me, and I ended up winning. And I thought if I was a guy, they would say, look at him go, he's so aggressive, he's so strong. But for some reason they don't want to say that or they don't like the look on my face when I'm riding at my maximum threshold because it's unattractive. Now, the guy who was commentating that race, who actually happens to be the president of my club and he's a real jerk, but he's got a hot girlfriend and he's into people who are good looking and he's a good looking guy and he probably is one of those guys that thinks, yeah, it's good that chicks ride, but, like, do they have the race and sweat and spit and stuff? So, again, that comes back to a very narrow view of what women should be doing. And, it, again, it comes back to you should do this. You shouldn't look unattractive. You should wear makeup when you race. Have you ever thought about that? What about going blonde? Do you think you might want to be blonde? comes back to the shoulds. Yeah. I should. Makes, yeah. I should push stop because my battery is about to run out and it's happened with Brendan McLean and I don't want to lose the file. So hold that thought. Holding. <laughs> so I can't. You know, I, and again, my only experience with that has been um, through surfing mm. and watching uh, and watching the women's heats go on in shitty waves, surfing for checks with far less zeros than the men were, and truly like being talked down to as, and it was truly like a second class. Mm. Like they train the same amount of hours. They, yeah. they, they dedicate their lives just as long. They've been at it since they were four years old as well, mm. and. It just it it just really really bugged me. But you know what happened? What 
Did you hear when that guy said that? Did you hear it when you were yeah, racing? Did. did someone tell you later on? No, I could hear him. And yeah. were you like, fuck you? Yeah, I'm here. Of course. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, you're right. If it was a guy, it would have been like, look at Ginsburg. So look at that determination. Yeah, what a fighter. Look at that determination. That's pure. That's yeah. years of training, just coming through, he's channeling, yeah. all that. It's funny. It's, it's actually everywhere. You go, you get your photo taken with a team and they want you to be smiley and they say, be playful, tell us funny stories. Then you see them going to be the men's team and they say, so let's talk serious. You know, how are you going to win this? What, what are your tactics? And so it's almost as though the value of what you're doing there is and, and again, if, if you're looking for it, you'll find it. But it's your decorative and they're athletes. Or, um, you know, I just think that that stuff is, is all pervasive. Now, Beachley said that, you know, when she started racing, uh, competing, sorry, she was getting paid nothing. And now the women are getting paid each competition, what she often made in a whole season when she was a world champion. So it's better. It's absolutely better. And there are some sports where it's equal, obviously, tennis, golf, um, which is remarkable, and that irks some of the professional men, although I heard a wonderful quote from Agassi a couple of years ago about that where he said, I think we're doing okay. You know, you win a Grand Slam and you win a few million. Uh, sure, there are a lot of guys that aren't earning any money, but there are hundreds of people that aren't earning the money that we're earning, and I think we're doing all right. You know, let's yeah. stop complaining, get some perspective. But is it when appreciating women's sport, is it a greater thing? Is it not being able to let go of conscious or subconscious paradigms of what, of gender roles? Yeah, look, I think we've all got subconscious bias. We, we see it with racism, sexism. Um, it's it's often, it pervades times in crisis, I guess, and when we're under pressure, I think we behave our worst. And so we all can behave that way and have that capacity. I don't think um, we're all Gough Whitlam and we can all have no bigotry in our, in our bones. But in general, the average woman has experienced more than her fair share of being excluded in an athletic sense, and I think that the best she can do is to keep giving her best self and not tolerating that crap as much as possible, which, again, is your decision. I mean, Caroline Buchanan's a great example. She's a world champion mountain biker and BMXer, gone to two Olympics and the best BMXer we've ever seen in the world. A few years ago, she was on the US circuit and not making any money and the boys were and she ended up posing in Ralph magazine in her bikinis. She looked awesome. She's got a great physique. But she said to me, oh, I got paid 50 grand for that. So now I can afford to get all over the US and do the competitions that I need to do. Now, she doesn't need to pose in her undies anymore if she doesn't want to. But the hard part is if you're a hot chick and you're an athlete, you're going to get offered those opportunities. And we did, you know, we've seen Stephanie Gilmore, a great surfer. She's a beautiful young woman and she surfs in a bikini all the time. So it's a very tricky one because should she be responsible for maintaining a portrayal of women that isn't sexualized, or as a young hot chick, is she allowed to go, hey, here I am in my bikini looking good? It's a challenge because if you're a doughy, uh, unattractive, low energy chick with no skill and that's all you see on Instagram all day long is tan slim girls with the perfect size breasts and beautiful hair shit you feel bad about yourself but in some ways and we see this with male and female athletes a lot of them would say well that's not my responsibility it's not my responsibility to look after the well-being the mental health of others and their body image of other women I just want to be a surfer man so I think part of part of um sexism in sport it continues to happen because a lot of athletes are young and they're exploited and they want opportunities. They need money. They need promotion. 
So they don't argue with shit like that because they're too busy trying to be a world champion. And I really believe that, but it's not till you get a bit older and you, you step back a bit and you think, well, actually, I'm not desperate anymore because I've got a job and mm-hmm. do other stuff. And I think this is really shit. What, what is the, how do I ask this without, what's the, I don't want to say benefit. What will be the great thing that happens when male and female sports are more equal? I actually think it's, it brings greater diversity to the audience. You know, we see, we talk about this with women on boards. When there are women on boards um, of high-level organisations, they bring diversity of thought. It's not just that they're a woman. They approach things differently. And if you're going to say, if you saw more women's sport on television, if every Sunday afternoon there was four hours of the wide world of sports and half of it was women's sport, you get shown things you might not have seen before or you see different styles of tennis. And most people prefer women's tennis to men's tennis because it's more tactical and a bit more athletic. Different game, really. So I think that in a way you'd start learning about different athletes. You'd be exposed to diversity. And if you're a mad AFL fan or an NFL fan and you don't want to watch anything else, then fine. You're not going to watch women's lacrosse. But the average sports fan actually enjoys competition and skill and prowess and they probably don't really give a shit. You know, I think the women's water polo match at the Sydney Olympics between the US and Australia, which was the gold medal match, was the game watched by most people on most most televisions that year. And then famously, uh, the thing that broke the internet, not Kim Kardashian's boobs, but um, when Japan played the US in women's soccer uh, three years ago, the World Cup final, there were something crazy like 6,000, 600,000 tweets per minute going off between, you know, Japanese and American football fans and soccer fans all over the world. Because of the hype, it had been promoted, it was post-earthquake, you know, it was an extraordinary story. And so Beach It's a very skillful game from what I recall. Incredible game. And, I mean, the American women are so extraordinary at soccer. So people appreciated, people who watch soccer go, oh, this is a great game. You want to watch it. It's going to be exciting. Big fanfare, you know. Mm. So if there was a Super Bowl for women and it was on primetime TV and there were a really bad band and really shitty cheerleaders, just the way there is, then people people watch what they're given, you know. So that's what's going to change is that people will actually be more interested, they'll be more engaged and they'll be seeing sports that they may not have had an interest in, and then there's new role models. Yeah. And people are having daughters. I mean, that's the thing that they're forgetting. Maybe their daughter half wants the to world, be. Half the world, dude. <laughs> <laughs> only half the do planet. The only half the planet. So what do you wish for? What do you wish for young female athletes? What do you wish? What, what's something that you wish they get to grow up I think, and not um, have to have or get to do? I think that just an idea that, that anything is possible. I know that sounds cliched, but one of the best things about going to an all-girls school was that for all of its foibles was that I felt in my final year at school, oh, yeah, if I wanted to be an astronaut, I could be. Now, part of that is my parents. They weren't um, narrowing my field of vision. They were opening it and saying, oh, what do you want to be? There was never when are you going to get married and have a baby or be a nurse or a secretary. They just said, oh, what do you like? And I could have said astronaut, fighter pilot, doctor, you know, showgirl. And they would have gone, oh, okay. And they would have, oh, here are expressing our that consent. That would be the best business card ever. <laughs> hey, Brody O'Donnell, astronaut, fighter pilot, showgirl. <laughs> that, I'm going to get those cards made up. All at once. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I fight those pilots in my tutu. Yeah. Um, I think that's, now it's hard to know what part of that was. Yeah, my parents, me, uh, the, the school environment, but there was never a sense that you are limited down a particular path. Now mm. we're very fortunate. Um, one of the things I I thought about on International Women's Day in March earlier this year is it's very easy for a white 
able-bodied, wealthy, healthy, employed woman like me, and I consider myself to be wealthy compared to the rest of the world, um, to say to Poo Poo International Women's Day, ah, you know, like who cares? And then you realise that all of these women who don't have jobs, they don't have their health, they're not um, in relationships that are free from violence, they live in a war zone, uh, they can't get access to free and safe abortion. That's why we need International Women's Day. So it's, it's yeah, it's very easy for me to sit back and go, yeah, whatever. But in the same way that Tanya Plibersek, our deputy opposition leader, was talking about feminism, that's still an important word because until women are represented on boards and until women's health is better and until girls can grow up and be in relationships that are free from violence and can go to schools and earn money and this gender pay gap doesn't exist, we need that word. It, it shouldn't be banned by Time magazine just yet. I agree completely. I agree, I agree completely. That the, the gender pay gap is it's embarrassing. In this country, how does it even happen? How does it even happen? I don't know. It's nuts, man. It's not happening in my house. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad. Now, um, you know, Dan, Dan Mack talks about, um, he talks about what happened to him. He was in uh, Kona. And he'd been running for like nine and a half hours or whatever. And he just he just had a peek through the event horizon just as he was coming up to the finish line. He's like, oh my God, he just like what happens when you're climbing up those mountains, when you're running across those lava fields at the, mm. the triathlons? What happens when you are at the very, very edges of your endurance? What happens to your 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 body what happens to the way you think what do you get visions what what do you learn about yourself in those moments a lot of um sports psychologists talk about flow and i i'm a big believer in that the concept that you can be at your best when you're so mindful that you're not really aware of anything else that's going on and for a skillful sport or a sport that requires extreme exertion you ideally would like to be in that state of flow for the whole event times when I have performed my best, I will almost not be able to describe what happened. Can't remember anything. I'm a bit of a mantra person. So if I'm in an event, I mean, I, I didn't, I'd done Hawaii. I couldn't do my damn mantra for 10 hours. I'm too slow. If I was Mark Allen, I could have had a mantra for eight hours. Um, but in a time trial, it's quite easy to think of um, a repetitive movement, um, sorry, string of words that you're using that are kind of they're not affirmations, but they're about process. And for me, that works. I, I mantras, running with mantras. Yeah. Got me through my divorce. Yeah, really? What yeah. kind of things? I, I used, it's wild that you say that, you use that in a, in a competitive. I, I've talked about this on the show before. And then I used the mantras while I was running to do with, it was when once I had the breathing going and once I had the repetitive motion mm-hmm. of the running going around about 45, 50 minutes mm-hmm. when the switchover happens and you feel that, you know, the change yeah. in your brain, um, that's when it kicks in and it starts to write new neural pathways. Mm. And, and you can, I actually found ways to change, change behaviors. Interesting. Like, and I program in if this, then that mm. kind of, yeah. kind of stuff. And you put it in there and you yeah. just do it. And, and you get better at it, I hours think. Hours and hours and mm. hours. It's like you using a toothpick in sandstone. You just keep going and going and going. Sure getting, getting in that groove. And you just, and eventually that groove becomes deeper than the previous habit 
groove. And mm. so when the thought fires, it goes down that path rather mm. than that path. Mm. So what mantras do you use when you're? Um, some of them are probably from being a rower. Some of them are technical-based ones because they help because I'm an overthinker. I was told that as that like that was one of the most deep criticisms that anyone could make of me. And you'll I've, never be a prefect and you're an overthinker. Yeah, you, you know what your problem is, you'll never be a great rower because you think too much. <sighs> and um, I love being told that by a bloke who never made anything of himself. Um, but I think it's interesting. Um, I found that I, I took that very personally. Um, I was really bad at taking... Um, not bad at taking criticism. I took criticism on and I would then go, oh, you know, you're right, I'm shit, you know. I used to do that a lot. And I think um, coming into sport later in life, one of the downsides of that is that people tell you a lot what you need to be doing. What you've got to do is this. And literally I will go riding on Beach Road in Melbourne, one of the most populated riding sections of road in, in the country, and when I started riding, people would ride up beside you and go, oh, yeah, what, are you, what you should do is this, literally giving you training advice. Now, I don't go into law firms and say, listen, mate, what you've got to do is go to the shelf here and get this book off here on tax law in 1945. But people, um, particularly, you know, this mansplaining expression, there's a lot of that that happens Mansplaining? Yeah, mansplaining. It's where a man tells you something that you already knew but he's teaching you because he knows more than you because he's a dude. Haven't you heard about mansplaining? I didn't invent it. You need to find the American woman who has written a whole blog about mansplaining. So mansplaining happens a lot in sports. So like, see, what you've got to do is do more hill climbing if you want to be a climber. Now, what I'd recommend, and initially I really took a lot of that stuff on and I thought, oh, God, why are all these people telling me to do stuff? I really need to do it. Then I worked out a better strategy, which is say to them, thanks, but I've got a coach. My coach knows me and he's writing my program and he's tops. So thanks anyway. And, um, but because, yeah, I was in a hurry as an athlete who started late, I, I didn't have enough time. And that was one of my biggest faults is that I wasn't patient. And, um, I thought, no, 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 I'm 15 years behind everyone else. I need to be better. And I need to be yesterday. So that's why I want to go back to Europe again. You know, I can't, but I'll be, I'd be 40 and I'd be more relaxed and I'd be more patient and I'd be smarter and I'd make better decisions. <laughs> Wouldn't we all? So I think that a lot of the time when I'm riding and particularly climbing, which is something I was historically not very good at because I'm very heavy, um, I now climb where I think, yeah, this is good now. I remember how that time you climbed up and I do a lot of referencing to times when I've climbed well and I literally imagine that I'm there in that time and I think about my body and holding myself up taller and I do a lot of that to think, yeah, yeah, remember you want to switch on your core so that your quadratus lumborum isn't activating and you want to push down a lot more in the glutes and really a bit more plantar flexion so that each time I'm pulling up with my feet, I'm getting a bit more float on each pedal stroke and keep my body straight and really push the bike a little bit more side to side. And so I'll be doing this climb in King Lake, which is a 20-minute climb out in the northeastern suburbs. And then you don't realise it, but a couple of minutes have gone by and it's hurting and you're still alive. And it also reminds me of that beautiful scene in that wonderful movie Overcoming, the cycling film about Bjarne Reese's team CSC in 2004 that had Carlos Sastra and Ivan Basso and a lot of great riders. And look, for all of his crazy flaws, Bjarne Reese, I think, is a beautiful cult leader, a wonderful director sportif. There's a wonderful scene where Armstrong, Lance Armstrong and Ivan Basso are, are going side by side up this amazing climb. And Ivan is a, a newbie, you know, he's trying to stick it to Lance Armstrong who's won the tour four or five times at this point. And Bjarne's on the radio and he says, don't be afraid, Ivan, don't be afraid. And I was thinking that in a race that I won a couple of weeks ago where 
um, I had had a plan before the race and then I got to a point in the race where nothing had gone wrong and I had to now enact this plan. And I did feel afraid because I thought, shit, most of the time in a race you can say, oh, well, you know, all these things went wrong and this is why I didn't win. And yet here I am at the bottom of the climb on the third lap, which is when I said I was going to attack because I need to drop all these other girls and I've got to go now. And I thought, don't be afraid, just go anyway. It's going to hurt, but they're hurting too. That's something I say to myself a lot. Make them hate you. Make them hate you and think, oh, no, she's going to attack shit. I do that a lot. I want people to, uh, and it's kind of, it's not about sort of sadomasochism. You figure in sports, a competition, I want to make people hurt more than I am because maybe then I have an opportunity to win. And I don't win very often. I'm not a great sprinter. I'm not a great climber. So I have to be opportunistic. I have to be relentless. And most of the time I don't win, but I try. So I have to make people hate me. I have to um, remind myself that they're hurting because that's one of the deepest um, problems in cycling is that you can become too internalised. And something we talked about before, you can think, oh, I feel tired. I oh, know that, look, I'm totally at my limit and this is my heart rate or I'm sure I haven't drunk enough. And you can, you, your negative self-talk can be overpowering and yet your positive self-talk when it's working is unbeatable. You go, yeah, sure, it's hurting you. I can hear this girl breathing behind me way harder than I am. Or you go right up beside someone, you start talking to her. She goes, well, yeah, yeah, I'm good. Thanks. And you think, you're fucked. You're not going to beat me. And that that doesn't happen very often. I'm not a world-class rider, but more and more there's more races in Australia and I'm getting a chance to actually feel accomplished or feel better. And that's pretty intoxicating and wonderfully satisfying feeling that I've been doing this long enough now where I think, shit, I think I know what I'm doing here. All right, so I've got the the big question to end with and you've just given it to me. You told me earlier, like you changed your entire life and you're trying your entire career to chase this sport down. You've just spent three minutes telling me you don't win a lot of races, you're not the best in the world, you won't be the best in the world, I can't go back to Europe. So why do you do it? Oh, I could give you 150 reasons why. <laughs> I'll go backwards from 150 to 1. Um, oh, I think it comes back to that idea of wanting to be exceptional at something. And then the more you do it, of course, the better you get and the closer you get to being exceptional. Um, it's very satisfying being strong and physically strong, physically very strong. And it's very satisfying helping a teammate. And I did that a lot in Europe and the US. When someone in your team wins a race because of something you did, and you literally say, I protected her, got her to the bottom of a climb and she launched and she won, you say, I feel amazing. Like it's, it's truly um, the most incredible um, definition of teamwork. And if she thanks you, bonus, you know, because, and I have written for some amazing women who do thank you. And, and, and to see, I wrote an incredible tour in China with Chloe Hosking, who's a young sprinter and who's riding for Wiggle Honda this season, coming season. She was really young, crazy talented, super bratish, you know, ridiculously fast. And all we needed to do was leave her in a good position with about a kilometre to go. But it was this shit fight of a tour in China and the roads were terrible and the Chinese were all ganging up on us and as they do, those damn Chinese, just a generalisation about bike riders. But, um, you know, it was we were underdogs completely. And I rode my ass off in that those three days. She won two of the stages and the overall, and I felt like I was a world champion because my contribution, and I think that's a lot about learning what your personality type is. I'm a total workaholic and I won't want my work acknowledged. 
So when I work really hard and I win a race, I feel satisfied. A sprinter, on the other hand, she's not a workaholic. She's an opportunist. She's sneaky. She's um, sensational, you know, and she appears in the last minute of the race and you haven't seen her for the three hours beforehand. So she wants to be recognised for her speed and her prowess and her um, confidence. I'm not that sort of personality. So I ride in a different way. So I think that's why I still ride because um, I'm still very strong. I'm still motivated to train and I'm good at it. And it keeps me in shape. You know, I'm vain. I want to be healthy and look good. Um, So I keep doing it and go back to my 20 year high school reunion and have better legs than the other girls. Bam. Um, So I think that uh, there's a lot of reasons. Um, it interferes with a lot of other aspects of my life. My, my family still find it annoying that I come home to Brisbane for Christmas for a week and I bring my bike, oh, riding again. Not that they want to hang out with me at 6am, but, you know, it's the point. It's yeah. the principle. Uh, and so that's been frustrating. But like anyone, um, when you do something that your family don't get, it's a drag, but it's not the end of the world. Yeah. Yeah. So what's the, I mean, I guess if you could put it down, what's, what's, the, what's, the, what's the moment? On, on the bike, what's, what's it feel like when it's all working? Um, when you uh, do get that, that perfect stroke. You, you feel invincible. And I guess it's kind of bliss. There's a bliss when you're at a physical maximum and yet you're perfecting a skill well. You're holding form and then rowing, obviously, it's even more challenging, but climbing, for example. Or when I won a time trial a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, I averaged 45k an hour for a pretty hard windy circuit. And I remember being at one point, you know, on my aero bars with my head tucked right down onto my forearms, only looking at about the 50, 80 centimetres of road in front of me going with a bit of a taily at this point, I was going about 50k an hour. And I just thought, fuck, I'm a machine. And it's, it's very empowering. <laughs> it's quite intoxicating. And it's not like there's che- crowds there cheering. I mean, this isn't a men's event. <laughs> I remember it just, it's beautiful. And to feel great at something, we don't all get that chance to do that very often. Um, but actually, I feel that sometimes I, you know, nearly every day that I work, I have an interaction with a patient where I've, uh, and I'm not trying to blow my own trumpet, but I've facilitated sometimes a conversation with a patient who never imagined that they would have that conversation. And men, most of my patients are men who, who've probably never spoken to someone about their marriage, their um, mental health, their feelings about life. And sometimes they cry. Sometimes they say, I've never told anyone this story before. I don't know why I'm telling you. And I think that's something else that I've discovered, even though I know I've been talking for two hours, I'm a really good listener and that's a gift that I never thought would be useful as a doctor, which sounds ridiculous, but it's the most, it's the best doctoring skill I have. I'm no, nowhere near smart enough like all my other doctor colleagues. I don't work as hard as all of them, but I let people talk and I think it's a real privilege to hear people's stories. Um, I feel it's like for them to be able to just do that and then feel better. I saw a fellow the other week and I think he was visibly like relieved and lightened by having told me this terrible, this terrible marriage breakup and this terrible situation and he couldn't believe it. And I thought, all right, that's the best thing I'm going to do all week. <laughs> it was pretty good. This has been amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. I think this has been great. Yeah, man.
Thanks, heaps. Hey, thanks for coming to my house. So good. I'm going to take your photo with all these beautiful bicycles in the background. <laughs> so many beautiful bicycles. All right. That's it. That's the show. That's Bridie O'Donnell, Dr. Bridie O'Donnell. Follow her on Twitter at Bridie, B-R-I-D-I-E underscore O-D. She's also got a great blog, bridie.com.au. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for being on my show, Bridie. Um, Please send her a tweet. Let her know you like the show. Let her know you want her to make her own show because she's got a very, very important voice. She has a very... She's she's got a gift, man, and um, I think she should be out there sharing it with the world a lot more because as you can hear she's a very inspirational human being thanks so much for listening please if you want to have this show magically arriving in your phone each and every week you can subscribe either through itunes through the podcast app or i recommend pocket casts which is uh, an australian app made in adelaide and um, it's for ios and android um, you can also subscribe to the mailing list to find out what's going on and you know what shows are coming up and other things like that osherginsberg.com that's where you can also email me send osher email at gmail.com it's been a huge week for everyone so what are some things that you can do that's in your power i don't know just spread some love in your world that's what we've got the power to do let's you know this week it's a good week for it just spread some love that uh, relative that you might be a little worried about seeing just if they're being cranky and weird just show them how much love you can give to them not in a cynical way just understand that if anyone's ever been cranky and weird at a Christmas thing it's only because they're scared so how can you be of service to them how can you help them feel less scared show some love to them this week have a fantastic Christmas I'm so grateful that you're with me on this journey Until next week, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.